0: Obviously, as I was saying, since this is recording, yeah, I'm just gonna go close that door. Uh, Since this is my specialty, I'm obviously, I have a lot more material than uh, than the catching up that I've been doing for for certain of these classes. Uh, I, I remember saying that I know this subject matter uh, I have it in the palm of my hand. Is that someone's computer? Yes. Okay, great, just <laughs> in case. <laughs> I just don't want anyone to lose their things. Uh, yeah, okay, so I've, uh, I've been uh, studying comic books for uh, 16 years now, so I'm pretty much like, uh, if you wanna throw curveballs at me, please do. I, I know this. I won't be, there are certain classes, as I was saying, that I was catching up, uh, freshing up about certain subjects, this one I feel comfortable about. Also, because I didn't want this class to be uh, an immense uh, geek out, I'm also, I thought about how, I, I'm constantly thinking about how I'm going to be teaching this class if I ever give it a second time. And one of the things that, that came to me in trying to take off substance or uh, overt substance for this class, but saying that there are certain very specific texts that I won't be talking about today, but I will be using later on. Uh, notably, I'll be speak- I won't be speaking of Dwayne McDuffie and the Milestone series of comics. I'll speak of Milestone later on because it works on another, uh, in another section. There are also, um, uh, there's a huge part of Vertigo that I won't really be speaking of, although it is, uh, uh, an ed- um, a uh, publishing house that I very much love and appreciate, but Vertigo is very experimental in their form, so I can pass certain things of Vertigo comics to the next, uh, the next class uh, is reality to change to be described through fiction. So the thing with comics kind of works in the same manner as what I was uh, speaking of with fan fiction, is that there is an immense tradition of uh, writing and drawing combined for sense, before comic books, but there's a lot in, um, in comic book studies that doesn't really have that discrepancy where they will start speaking of 16th century Catholic engravings as proto-sequential art. That makes kind of sense, but I, we're, we're really going to ease into that one. The thing with comic books is that it's very hard to define. Uh, one of the major theorists in comic books or American comic books is a man called Scott McCloud who wrote a book called Understanding Comics where he is stress testing definitions. Like stress testing is you offer a definition and then you look if it works under certain circumstances. So even, the, even using, like not saying comics but saying sequential art which is one of the, uh, of the ways that we call this form of uh, literary expression, sequential art doesn't hold to a stress test because there are certain comics that are not sequential there are only one uh box so like one drawing is still considered comic art but it can't be considered sequential art because there is no concatenation to it we're not adding and we're not creating sense by putting two elements uh, in comparison or in continuity one with the other so that's why Comics is complex, sequential art is complex, um, the, the, even the understanding of uh, space and time when read is something really, really complicated because you can't give a, a all-encompassing definition. If these are things that are of interest to you, read Understanding Comics, where he offers, uh, Scott McCloud offers some super interesting aspects, super interesting analysis of, on how the uh, human brain reads images Notably like one of them that I really like to quote, well, I might not use it, no, no, no. He, he um, shows how the disposition of panels and the dimensions of panels can evoke senses of time where a longer panel will give the impression that the pause is longer and a shorter panel will give the impression of having just a little s- uh, uh, slide of time. You're doing it on comics, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Understanding Comics would be a great resource for you. You're, you're right, but they're still, I don't know if they always, they don't always do like the square, square, square. Sometimes it's square, rectangle, square. So you even have that dimension of time in the, in the, the graphic representation. But uh, Scott McCloud also, especially since you are actually doing it on, um, comics online, I think it's yeah, it's reinventing comics where Scott McCloud at the end of the 90s he started thinking of how comics wouldn't in- exist online and he uh, proposed, I think it's Scott McCloud who proposed the idea of infinite canvas where uh, a comic book has a very regular structure where it has to obey this type of display Infinite Canvas doesn't have that display. When you're doing comics online, you can scroll all the way left to infinity, you can scroll all the way down to infinity, and there are a lot of artists who played with that. There's one piece in particular that I really enjoy, but I can't remember what it was called, is a um, a Spider-Man comic that was a scroll down. So basically, like your entire screen was the comic, and while you were scrolling down, you would have Spider-Man, walk down the wall and there would be like windows appearing with situations. So he would get into the window and there is no, there's no page break. It's just you scrolling down, having the adventure. That's part of what they call the infinite canvas. So you can look at that very much. And he frames the infinite canvas as being an exploration of space in comics. That is things that we, that that are elements that we see in 15, uh, s- not 15, but like uh, 16th, sec- 16th and 17th century type of art. So the religion, religious engravings look like this. Uh, this is something that comes from the 18th century. The idea that there are many images in cooperation here, we might not see the story as we are used to reading comics now where everything is ordered, but there is a type of story in between the elements. We. S- we're not used to these types of boxes, but the boxes are still very much there. Um, during those years, the readers were more informed towards reading this type of form than we are used right now in reading the type of form that you can see in mouse, for example. Uh, the um, after well, it's it's pretty much around those years. These types of engravings, the um, comics are also very much. Dependent on innovations in technology, so it's a lot—the printing press and the graving presses, and uh, what they would call les manuscrits illuminés. So these are uh, stories that have illustrations uh, in them, and the story kind of kind of contourne les illustrations. During those years, in the innovation and printing presses, they would uh, start calling them broadsheets. So the, uh, the broadsheet is a, a long form, like basically the broadsheet is if you take the sheet and you put this sideways, they would present this as a form of impression called broadsheet. But um, when they were editing the broadsheet, well, when they were, sorry, not editing, when they were packaging, I'm just gonna end this and I'm going up to you. When they would package these broadsheets, they would do what they call the process, the process that they would do would be called the comical cut. And because of the comical cut, they started talking of the comic cut, and then it ended up being only called comics. That's where the term comes from. It's not, it's so distant from what we think, as in it should be humorous, it's n- it doesn't come from humor at all. The comical cut is a printing process. In the same manner as, um, uh, I can't remember which, I think it's, mm, uh, did I write this? yeah uh, no, I didn't. The project is overheating. Great. yeah, okay. Uh, I think around 19th century, I think this is Prince Albert, but every time there's a prince, I keep thinking of Prince Albert more than anyone other, any other prince. Um, prince Albert had a this I'm, I'm doing by memory. I think he had a he had a contest to redraw a palace. And when he was redrawing the palaces, people would submit their ideas on huge cardboards. And these cardboards were used as illust- uh, illustration material that they called carton, obviously. And when that practice came to Great Britain, they start calling them cartoons. So that's where cartoons come from. It's old architectural plans. So once again, very far from what we understand as being the origin or the understanding of those those terms. This is comics and carton, uh, cartoons is carton. Yes. Uh, do you think triptych paintings would fit in the, yeah. the, the, the story of mm-hmm. the mm. That's a thing. Some people.
1: There's no written word but there is conveying a story or a message through a sequence of the
0: That's why, like, some people, like, uh, a lot of history of comics will take those into consideration but might exclude them as seeing them more as the beginning of and by showing that this the type of reading is not new. It's not something that came in with the 20th century or the end of the 19th century. But uh it, it it's not more of a distant cousin. Exactly. It's it's a way and there's a lot of this in especially, like, especially when you're talking of uh unnoble objects where people will start saying like in the uh, 1970s maybe, people started wanting to do academic research on Mickey Mouse, and then people would go like, oh, Mickey Mouse, that's so stupid, why are you doing that? And then in academia, people would use examples from the past to say it's not that ridiculous, it's just you're focusing on the object, but the tradition comes from very far in our past, so there is a reason to. So yes, absolutely, like triptychs are seen as a proof that that type of storytelling is something that I- is uh, older than 200 years. That's why every good history will go back all the way to uh, Les Cavernes de Lascaux, obviously, like people are saying, well, you know, there was a, uh, a sequence of characters and animals on that cavern, so, the, the um, desire to tell stories through illustration and writing is something that we can pull all the way back to that tradition and it presents arguments to say, well, it's not crazy that I wanna talk of Batman. Uh, but it's, it's also like, um, as I said, it's something that's very technological, but also in those transformations, there is a progress towards a fixed form. So right now what you are mostly familiar with is the fixed form of comics. You recognize it when you see it and you're like, it's, it's basically like the, that tautologic definition, a tautologic definition is a definition that goes onto itself, is saying, I know what comics is, I can say what a comic is when I see one because I recognize it. I, if you give me an example, I'll say, this is a comic, this is not a comic. It's just like a, a simplicity of definitions. Exactly, that it's, um, I think like, the. Oh, who said that? It's, oh yeah, the, one of the famous examples of that is, uh, I can't remember who said it, but uh, it's the laws on pornography. Like, you don't, like, only, you don't know what, we can't define what pornography is, but everyone knows what it is when they see it. Is, and the line for pornography is, completely different from one person to another. So if you give a strict definition of it, people will say, well that doesn't include what I would add into it and stuff. But it when you see it the definition, it shows me what way to go around it. Yeah, also also there's that there's that thing, but it's like I, I couldn't say what pornography is, but I could tell you when I see it.
1: that gives you all the power
0: That's that's why like I in, in the back of my mind I seem to remember that it was someone in politics that said that. But that's also something that you can extrapolate for, for comics, you know what it is when you see it. So in our perspective, this would not enter the definition of comics, or maybe, but in my definition, it kind of it's kind of far away from it. Uh, the broadsheets, there you go. These are kind of what they look like. They. Th- <laughs> yes you might see a lot of reproductions of this. Uh, The thing is that this is what I I really like to stress on and why the uh, class is called like this, is that the, it was always understood that there is an immense political power when you put text and uh, images together. There's a lot more impact and there's a lot more uh, possibility of propaganda through text and image, Books themselves have very massive ideologies and have sometimes encouraged people to go in certain political directions or certain social directions, but text image is amazingly efficient when we're trying to do propaganda and when we're trying to speak to, uh, to masses. So this is one of the, like one of the examples is Benjamin Franklin that we now know as being someone very important in the United States who published in 1754 this join or die message where if you had only, if you had blocked out the text and you had only presented this, would not have given that much of an understanding, like it, it doesn't offer as much as an understanding of what uh, Benjamin Franklin's message uh, is. If you take off the uh, the image, at the same time you have this, phrase that can be a call to arms, but can be very uh, pluri-interpretable. But the join or die Benjamin Franklin meme, I really think that this is a meme since it's been reused all the way up to the uh, the insurrection on the 6th of January. We could see these on a, on a. Cartoons, <laughs> Cartoons thank you. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to. Uh, like there, there's a, and the, in the history of the United States, there's a, a as I as we are as I'm showing right now, there's a very early understanding of this. In uh, 1770, Paul Revere published a cartoon of the Boston Massacre, and it really influenced like the anti-British uh, feeling through uh, these uh, these images. In uh, end of 18th century, we end up with something as political, but closing, uh, uh, getting a little closer to our idea of what a comic is, especially in the artist's rendering. So Rodolphe Topfer, who does these meticulous pages with obviously a a political undertone. Uh, And uh, this is like around, basically it's around Topfer's usage of comics that people really go with the, They go all out with using it. One of the things, um, is this? Yeah, one of the things that was very advantageous for comics a little later on in the years, maybe like, maybe more towards the end of the 19th century is the idea that in the United States there was a lot of uh, migrant populations. So since there wasn't a uh, confirmation that they spoke English, having the image to be able to underline or to make explicit the written message was very uh, useful for um, papers. So what would happen is that a lot of newspaper uh, journals would have illustrators on hand to be able to illustrate one of the or some of the major articles that they want migrant populations to read, especially to sway them in political affiliations. So if you want to have a more, if if uh, Italians are welcome with the Democratic Party, basically. Yes. Uh, my question is a bit more technical. The,
1: in the papers, uh, th- I think the style was called engravings
0: or cover. Uh, what year? Uh, I, I'd say pre <laughs> <laughs> pre-digital. Oh yeah. yeah.
1: If you go back to 19th century, early 20th, um, you, you see that style where it's very line heavy, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, It's a, a black and white or black and brown type of a. Um,
0: it's a. Um, yeah.
1: I, I was just wondering is it they carve a block of wood, they put something in it, and then
0: they stamp it? I don't think it's wood. Uh, okay, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was actually like the artist would draw and they would do like a negative of it, and then there would be a, a reuse. Okay. But. Wood, wood carving is really earlier. We're we're more in metal here. In between wood and metal, there was bronze. And bronze was used mostly for um, not, I wouldn't say like single usage illustration, but like Gustave Doré would use a lot of bronze. Uh, We're in between. But once again, this is the type of thing that they wouldn't be used as much if they were expensive. The more that the technology is accessible and that the printing presses can use them in a turnabout manner, the more it gets used and then people such as um, did I did I write this one down no uh, who there's an actual uh, hmm I thought I had this written down, but I can't. Oh yeah uh, in in uh, sixteen seventy six Grover Cleveland credited the cartoons above all else in his eighteen eighty four presidential presidential victory so like they understood very quickly that they would it's interesting how comics were what the internet was in elections like eight years ago how the like people say that Obama was the first uh, internet president because of the yes we can movement but then there was like the the actual real first uh, internet president which uh, was uh, Donald Trump. So like there's there's that type of, I won't say disruptive technology but very popular technology that is used to sway opinions politically. And this goes up to uh, all the way back to 1884 where Grover Cleveland wins and he goes like I really want to thank the comics for (laughs) <laughs> giving me the opportunity to be, to be president of the United States, which is strange. So to uh, and then we go. Uh, end of the nineteenth century. Yeah. Okay. No. 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 Okay. Yeah. It, uh, end of end of the nineteenth century. You end up having because. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In what, The yellow bastard. Oh yeah, the yellow papers, which were, uh, the yellow papers. yeah, yellow yeah,
1: Hurst and, uh, um, uh,
0: Pulitzer. yeah, yeah. Joseph Pulitzer. Uh, yeah, yellow. The, the yellow kid is yellow because of limitations in the usage of color in uh, in printing presses. Like, the Hulk was never green. The Hulk was uh, theoretically gray but there was a, like a problem in, uh, in in printing. So there are things of the sort. Uh, yeah, it's, the first Hulks were really, really gray and later on someone re-explained the history of Hulk by saying Hulk, the more he becomes beast-like, the more he is gray. The more he is green, the more he is Banner. So there's like a shading of Hulk. Yeah, yeah. I study these things. Redcon. There you go. Uh, yep. <laughs> but all these, there are Uh, moments of codes, like, there's a lot of codification in uh, text image literacy, but Utko is really the one who started using, like, basically what I don't want you to think is that he invented the word balloon. The word balloon existed before him, but he, uh, this is like the first usage of the... Archetype or the, the understood usage of the word balloon. Like the first time it appears, it's through Utko's uh, Yellow Kid. I said Yellow Bastard because he's a character in uh, Frank Miller's Sin City. If you remember that film, uh, I think who plays him? Ah, uh, yeah, uh, I can't remember the name of the actor. But in Sin City, everyone's uh, in black and white, but there is one yellow character who's called the Yellow Bastard. And the Yellow Bastard is a reference to, uh, to Utko's uh, the, the Yellow Kid. So it doesn't who, course, No, that's um, that's Elijah Wood. That's of the yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Elijah Wood is the creepy serial killer that makes no noise, no noise. Uh, that's the guy who eats. Yes, sorry. He eats people. <laughs> the guy who tortures The children. Yeah. tortures children. Who and tortures it? children here?
1: the, the, the
0: yellow bastard. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was looking for another character. Everyone at home is really confused right now. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> like your yeah. ah. um, so yes, there's something in the, fa- especially like uh, also adding uh, textual elements to the visual where there would be like uh, feelings of emotions and stuff of the sort. So these are all things that are, have been added on. There are certain codes mm-hmm. like, uh, Right now we're being very well informed in, right now, like maybe in the last 10 years, a lot of the uh, the Japanese style of, uh, of uh, drawing, the codes like the the, um, the drop of water, the uh, uh, certain form of eyes, uh, yeah, the, the tears, which weren't codes of reading in North America until maybe like 20 years ago where people started getting these codes. Now these codes have been integrated in children's animation and they appear pretty much everywhere. So this is the same thing, is that what we consider a fixed form is just uh, borrowing techniques until pss, there, something happens. As you can see in, uh, in Yellow Kid, there are no boxes. We're still using the entire page as canvas. This will be uh, recuperated later on through uh, Will Eisner's art. I won't be speaking a lot of Will Eisner today, sadly. Uh, in the most ex- impressive artists of that time. I obviously have to uh, speak of Winsor McKay. Winsor McKay had a long running series called Little Nemo in Slumberland where it would be basically a child falling asleep and entering a fantastical world. And in the fantastical world there would be these, like he's riding his bed here and there's all these Usages of, of uh, wavy forms and really like up until the point where even the I should have get it, got a higher res version But the bed tangles itself in its own uh, legs and then Nemo falls off and Here you see him falling off of his bed but Through Windsor McKay there's something People in comics are constantly referring back to dream states. Like every 10 years, there's something that speaks of the dream state, and it, I wouldn't say like it starts with Win, Windsor McKay, but a lot of references call back to that time. So there are a lot of, and th- there are a lot of dreams in comics, and when you get to the 60s, then that becomes a lot of drugs in comics, because it's, it's altered states. It's different ways of seeing the world. Yes, no? Uh, Yeah, suffice to say, Yellow Kid is really like the first widely recognized comic book character. There are like first of everyone, but he's the first recurring character that people would even buy papers to keep uh, following his adventures. And then Nemo comes up, and then a lot of other characters comes up, yes? exactly yeah he wanted
1: were like two yellow kids uh, at the same time that were written by different
0: people and and the public wouldn't mind that's one of the the real aspects is that there was no recognition of Utko's yeah or his importance it's basically as long as we draw someone yellow we can publish it all over the place and people won't even see the difference and
1: they will buy
0: it yeah and they will what Buy it, yeah, sorry, I heard diet. They were
1: looking for yellow kids in in their
0: paper. And that is the type of reasoning that brought on a lot of the superheroes. It's basically certain superheroes were in-house creations. We have this guy, like we have Superman. Let's try super guy. Let's try super dude. Let's try and then everyone's like, oh yeah, it's that Superman thing. But they wouldn't really it wasn't really a huge discrepancy in between, they'll like, so, th- and that happened uh, later on through copyright where certain characters would be called like, Shazam originally was called uh, Marvel Man, but then Marvel Comics went, you're not allowed to use the word Marvel, so he was reused as Captain Mar. Uh, no, he was uh, Captain Marvel and then they repackaged him as Shazam, but Shazam is the word that he uh, speaks out loud to be able to get his powers. So, like the legal aspects came a lot later, sorry for scrambling things right there um, the uh, one of the things also through uh, Windsor McKay is that a lot of people have started I can't I, I wouldn't want to say that this is when people started taking comics seriously because it took a lot more time but this is the moment where people started, thinking of comics as being an an artistic expression coherent with the ideas of the time. So Windsor McKay was speaking of dreams and the unconscious and uh, how dreams uh, are waking dreams or sleeping dreams and how they have an effect on our tangible life while Freud was becoming pretty popular. So people were reading both in a coherent understanding. Not saying like the comics are entirely separated from the intellectual life. There were people who would see in Windsor-Bacay a form of application of Freud's theories. This will also be uh, a lot more uh, concrete later on. Did I do? Yeah, okay, not now. Uh, Later on you'll get uh, certain like pulpish characters. So I don't even know, like, does anyone know Dick Tracy? Okay. Oops. Of course. <laughs> okay, of course he knows. Okay. Okay. But anyone else? Okay. The, is it because of the film? Uh, it, it was my first contact. Exactly. The, me too. So it's fine. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's no shame there. Uh, Dick Tracy was a, 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 an amazing film directed by Warren Beatty where he played the t- titular character. There was a moment around the mid 80s, mid to late 80s where uh, there was a huge grab for uh, intellectual properties of superheroes and Dick Tracy was one of the very uh, salient one. We, I'd, I'd go up to the point where saying it might be one of the first convincing comic book adaptations, especially around the fact that like Madonna's in it, uh, Warren Beatty uh, plays a character, I think Al, Pacino. Al Pacino's in it, he plays Mumbles, okay, who plays, who plays Mumbles? Yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, Dick Tracy is a, um, on the beat, like th- what they, they call him, it's weird because it doesn't, these words aren't really great, but it's scientific romance, but it's not scientific nor romantic. It's more like very romantic around the idea of crime fighting. And Dick Tracy had gadgets, he had a communicator watch, and he had a, a very um, strange rogues gallery. So he had a, uh, one of his villains was a man named Flattop. So basically the guy had really like a flat head and one of the other gangster villains was Mumbles. He had like all of these types of rogues that uh, are recuperated later on by Will Eisner's The Spirit. But are proto or like something that are very evocative when we think of Batman, for example. Starting with Batman as having him as a central character but having all these villains around him that are, Colorful and strange and and, uh, uh, like individuals, but each have like a a personal dimension. Yes?
1: I'm not about to mention it. I can clearly see the parenthood between the the Warm Baby movie Dick Tracy and uh, Tim Burton's.
0: Yeah. Well, it's those years, like five years apart, maybe? Yeah, yeah,
1: but you can clearly see which came first and who drew inspiration.
0: Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the Dick Tracy is super colorful. It's really like. Explosive! It's it's really really fun. It's a yeah, be, yeah. You're right. It's basically something if you ever if you're looking for a, a good action flick or adventure, mostly more of an adventure one, It's really good. Uh, but uh, the uh, Dick Tracy cannot be considered a superhero because he does not have superhero superhuman characteristics. The first superhero would be, it's like a tie in between a character called the Phantom that was also adapted um, on the screen where uh, Billy Zane, the bad guy from Titanic, played him. Uh, The Phantom gets his powers from a crystal in Amazonia. So some people say the Phantom is the first superhero. Other people say that Popeye is the first superhero. Because Popeye has supernatural powers because of the spinach. So there's like a, yeah, but he's obviously not a superhero. You're like, yeah, well, He's still super strength, and uh, huh. so there is... It's
1: like yelling Shazam to get your power,
0: can finish... Yeah, yeah, no, but it's, I, I think he doesn't... People argue with the idea of Popeye because it's not the archetype of the superhero. He's kind of bubbling and stuff, but if you're looking for the first superpowers, it's Popeye. And, and people get like... Oh, everything during that time was notoriously very racist. There was. Uh, the, 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 wartime, uh, car- the, the,
1: the wartime cartoon Popeye was always like fighting the Japanese,
0: and it's. It Superman had a slap a jap campaign. <coughs> it's it's. Uh, slap a jab? Yeah, Superman was like, hey, if you ever want to help your country, slap a jap. Wow. Yeah, there's some there's some dark dark oh, wow. history there. Yeah, no 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 yeah when. I'm I'm often asked to to, to comment on how propaganda evolved and stuff, and you just can't go back. Mm -hmm. When you go back, everything becomes horrible. (laughs) It's just, you, you can't trust anyone. It starts, like everything starts to get a little bit okay around the 60s, where we'll see there's civil conscious, that civil consciousness that comes in, but before that, it's very, us versus them, super us versus them. Uh, Okay, so uh, Dabber writes that, and this one I checked so there shouldn't be too much errors. The Age of Heroes was in the air, and uh, like the end of the 1930s, uh, sorry, beginning of the 1930s, The Age of Heroes was in the air and if in more literary fiction they took the form of Hemingway or Steinbeck's rugged, put it all out there masculinity, in Pulp Fiction, The Mysterious Manhood of the Shadow, because the shadow know what evil lurks in the heart of men. If you're interested, Alec Baldwin plays the shadow. Uh, There's um, a crazy Tibetan dagger with teeth that screams at people. It just should be like a selling point. Just go watch the shadow. It might not age that well. The comic book business recognized, consciously or not the appeal of combining these contradictions into a single individual behind a mask. Even if said mask was just a pair of glasses and the strategic positioning of a Ah, no, a spit curl. sorry. In short, the end of the depression would mark the birth of the superhero. So, as I was uh, speaking earlier on, the idea of having these icon- uh, iconographic, iconographic, yeah, iconographic um, elements appearing all over in the history of comics, and then some people recuperating them, and then them being recognizable signs, this uh, is also the case in how superhero characters were created, and how comic book characters were created. We took a little bit of this, we took a little bit of that, took a little bit of, boof, this character. Yes, wait. No, just gonna say the word iconography. Iconography, sorry. Still working? Yeah, all right. Just in case, just in case. Uh, uh, Wait, I think I'm going all the way to Golden Age. Okay, not gonna go to the Golden Age immediately. Since everything doesn't, I'm continuing on this idea of pieces of, so the language of comic doesn't appear as a block, it's just practices and practices until it becomes habit. Superhero characters are also attributes, characteristics, until they become a full fledged archetype. This is the same thing with the book itself. Um, During the Hearst and um, uh, Pulitzer era, they would hire illustrators, and illustrators would do these strips, and strips were used to sell uh, papers. So people would want to read the next adventure of Little Orphan Annie, so they would buy the paper, and that's how the, uh, the media moguls uh, made their money. Uh, in uh, 1911, a paper called The Chicago American, they ended up, like, what happened is that they saw that they had discarded papers. So they went, wait, let, let's take just the strips, let's put them together, and we'll, um, s- the, the, the thing would be, if you would send six coupons to the paper, they would send you the little book. So it's like six coupons are six proofs that you bought a paper. So you have, like, you would cut it off, you would put it in an envelope, you would put like a dime for the, for the shipping fee, and you would send it to them, and they would send you a book. They were just trying that out. They sold 45,000 45, copies in the first week. In the first week. Just <laughs> completely misunderstanding how popular this would get. Uh, yeah, seems so. 1934, Max Gaines does exactly the same thing, but he just stumbles upon a warehouse full of abandoned comics, and he does like the first anthology that is called... Um, I have someday funnies, but it's uh, Famous Funnies. Famous Funnies and Funnies on Parade is he would like buy old papers, super cheap. He would cut them up. He would staple them together and then he would sell them. <laughs> Actually, he tried it. And then it, it, what happened is he, he tried it once. He, they were 10 cents uh, a pop. He put them on a, a, a newsstand, a friend of his. And it like in the morning, he had sold them all. So Max Gaines became one of the important moguls of, the co- of comic book history, just through that technique, getting old papers, cutting them up, stapling them, and selling them off. Uh, obviously, this type of thing got more and more popular, so uh, there are people such as Harry Wildenberg, who started offering comics every time you would fold your car at, Gol- at Gulf Oil. And that would get people to buy gas, and that would get people to buy more comics. So these are all like, um, yeah, that's fine. These are all like little initiatives that are, what's special is that there is no one model, it's just the comic that ends up being in circulation. And since there are, that format exists, then people are like, oh wait, I can use the comic to bring them to my gas station. I can use the comic to pass my overstock. and So again, it's not something that happened as in Max Gaines did something and it became the standard, it became the format. It's plenty of different little intrusion or uh, attempts in selling comics and realizing that they're massively popular and just going, okay, well we need to start doing more of this and how can we be creative in distributing these uh, these types of comics? And so then you go up to 1932, uh, Independent News, which is found by Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibovitz. Uh Independent News are an independent news organization. They are doing these strips that are closer to uh, adventure titles or defe- detective or action titles. And they have this idea of saying, in our anthologies, let's see if we can, because the uh, the famous funnies were uh, d- well, discarded, but they were disparate, um, uh, they were uh, yeah, it, it wasn't like th- there wasn't, it wasn't all Popeye's trips it was just like anything you can get, you kind of, there was no coherence within the patchwork? book it's p- kind of patchwork, but it's more like samples There you go. It's it's just a a sampled pack of strips that you could have read or uh, haven't read. And Independent News, what they did is they went, let's make one that's coherent. So let's make the the first two that they did is uh, adventure stories. So it's like these strips are all adventure themed. And the second one was called Detective. And the second one became an editorial branch on itself of Independent News it started calling itself Detective Comics, and then ended up calling itself DC. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) That was the first, ah, I got in the class, yes. (laughs) Yep, so that's how it started. In the golden age of comics, in 1931 to 1954. As everything in history, we cannot precisely situate eras especially things that are kind of the Golden Age starts pretty obviously it, it's not complicated to say that it starts off with action comics number one with uh, with uh, the the creation of Superman uh, and then it goes all the way to th- basically what I'm trying to say is that it's porous some people argue that a certain comic will will be like the the announcing cry for one period some people say that it's another but Golden Age comics always start with uh, Superman. Superman was created by two guys from Cincinnati, uh, Joe Shuster and um, uh, Jerry Siegel, one of them of uh, Canadian descent. This part I am intentionally extracting from this class because in Superman there is a very important block of the construction of American ideals that I'd like to keep for Canadian American culture. Is that okay? Okay, because I like I was thinking about the fact that you might not all graduate, so should I be giving <laughs> everything here? No, but like intentionally or not, not in, yeah. Some people might you might just get work. Mm, not, not, no, I don't think you'll fail. I I, I would be very surprised. But like uh, as a teacher, I was like, do I do I put everything in my class and then? If you do Canadian-American culture, I'm like, oh everyone that was there last time, I've already said this. Or do I start putting in like blank spaces and going, Superman is so important in the construction of American identity that I won't talk about that. Because, okay, the fact that uh, Schuster is part Canadian, the most important prize of Canadian comics is called the Schuster. The fact that a lot of people are, uh, there's, <laughs> Uh, In in the media, anytime Superman pulls away from the American identity, there's always like a huge debate in the United States where Superman is uh, like, I think a year ago, retracted on truth, justice, and the American way. He is no longer associated to the American way. And then obviously some people in the the right went like, oh, Superman is ours, how dare you? Uh, But he's an alien. (laughs) It's just that simple. But there is uh, in the uh, character of Superman a a very interesting exchange in between the American and the Canadian identity, so I'll keep it for that. What's important to know is that Superman took, I think, six years to be sold. He was rejected seven times. It's not an instantaneous success. These two kids actually uh, wrote a lot of characters. But what is important about Superman is that as I was saying earlier on, he is a composite of plenty of elements. He is of a base, like his base comes from a character called Doc Sampson, which was more of an adventurous um, huge boots, cropped up, white shirt, opened up like adventure guy. But then what's really like why Superman is such, I, I keep saying this and I, I feel very cheesy when I say this, because it needs to be explained. In my regard, Superman is a perfect idea. You can't really change anything around him or of him because the it's he's he's like a diamond. everything. Uh, to not sound too geeky, I say that about baseball also. Like baseball is just like a perfectly measured sport, and that if you change one thing, it'll, it'll it'll throw everything out of balance. Where you can adapt certain rules for basketball, you can adapt certain rules for for uh, football. But baseball is so, Ge- uh, geometry, like the geometry and the, the, everything is just so well done that you don't touch it, it's fine. Superman is that type of thing. You're like, don't touch it, he's fine. Yes, and then you I'll. could I'll argue that the same
1: characteristic, characteristic that makes Superman and baseball perfect is the same characteristic that
0: makes them impossibly boring. No! <laughs> How can I fail you? <laughs> no! <laughs> No, I, I, it, it is a it is a popular idea. It's not mine. I'm, I, I'm. I want like next weekend is the first uh, grapefruit grapefruit, <laughs> grapefruit game, uh, baseball. You are going to be happy that I love gaze- baseball so much because uh, correcting uh, while watching baseball is the best thing in the world. It's so great, huh? Yeah, but it's it's not the sport. It's how it, they, they are changing four cameras, but it's not, it's, oh, okay, you, you, okay. C'est, c'est, <laughs> les pa- c'est les paramètres qui changent, c'est pas le sport. Hmm. Oui, mais là, ils sont en train de les uniformiser, là. Ils sont en train de les uniformiser, là. ils enlèvent le... Yeah. I agree, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yes. Uh,
2: you mentioned that it was like rejected for six
0: years. Yeah, something but, around this. But no, have... no, uh, 17... Letters of refuse, six years, 17 rejections, six years to sell, to sell, yeah. But did they have to make adjustments
2: to the character or the whole
0: thing? No, that was pretty much it. They just went on, like during that time it was a lot of work for hire. Uh, basically what you would do is you would go to a, a newspaper and you say, I have this character. The character is called blah 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 and he does this, and they're like, oh, okay. Or not at all. <laughs> this is a character that wasn't since he was like, uh, as I was saying, like he's Doc Samson, but he's also he comes from space. So there's the 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 um, the core adventure type of the character is there. Then you have the science fiction aspect to him because he's an alien, and you add the urban superhero element. So super, why Superman is such a great idea is that he has three types of story in one character, and that I. I I'm not shocked anymore in saying that it takes six years for people to get to that point because you need to you need to exhaust all the other archetypes like people need to start getting bored of the action hero and then a little bit bored of the Martian hero and then a little bit bored of the like the 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 thing about the underwear on the outside of his uh, of his (laughs) costume comes from the tradition of uh, uh, strongmen carnivals. That's why the, the, the underwear on the, uh, are the, uh, on the outside because carnival men had these huge diaper underwear and it would, it would be like a, a symbol of strength. So the fact of having, and the cape is for movement. It's the best way of illustrating movement and displacement without having like the, the, the idea of having um, speed lines or, or even airlines around characters weren't very present during that time so adding a cape is just uh, an accessory to show the movement of the character. Superman is going quickly in this direction because the cape flies. That's that's why there are capes. Yes. But
2: like in the early days, let's say he didn't have capes, would it be like harder for the readers to understand what he's doing? Because exactly? I know, like right now, it's easier with colors and everything. But so like, like early days,
0: I wouldn't say harder. I think people wouldn't like since the language wasn't that developed. They weren't thinking of that. It, it, the adding the cape gives like the, um, a lot of, uh, of comic historians, especially art historians who speak of comics, consider this, this image, I'm, I'm overusing this term, but this image is perfect. In uh, art history understandings, like the, the fact that, I, I heard someone speak about it for like 40 minutes and I was amazed. Uh, there's a movement in this page You start off by this ellipsis, you go to the tire, you get, because the eye always goes to the first character, so you get the forefront character, and the eye also goes to the center. There is a centering of the subject here that works. It just attracts the eye, and it brings you to the central subject in having, like, it's almost as if you have a, the, you have an entire story. You're looking at the car crashing, you're looking at the reaction of the people around them and then you're looking at who's doing this, who can move the car, who can create this. So like there, even like in comic studies, there are people who have written stories about this guy. Like why is he there? Why is he so important? Because there's in the display of the elements, it's, it's just, it just attracts. In design theory, this is an A-plus, basically. Yeah, it's based on the golden ratio. Yeah. It's there, but you don't, like, instinctively, you wouldn't see it, but it's, exactly, the golden ratio is right there. And that's why, if it it was proposed, like, in 1932, all those ideas existed, but they're all there. It, it becomes like just that's why once again perfect idea. Everything becomes one thing, and it and it it, it it's Superman is bigger than the sum of his parts. So that's how he becomes something else. Uh, oh yeah, this is also very important in the history of comics. Uh, this becomes a massive success, obviously, because there are also a lot of uh, literary precedents. We're speaking also of, um, uh, um, in philosophy, uh, Nietzsche starts speaking of Ubermensch, the, the superhuman. There's a Man and Superman, that's a play by George Bernard Shaw, and Gladiator, a novel by Philip Wiley that's immensely influential during that time. So in comic books, in culture, and in literature, Superman is kind of like a, a, a bull'seye of all these things so uh, yeah and then it becomes some sort of a success they sell this will kind of this will this will hurt um, the rights for Superman are sold for $130 this will become an underlying thing in the history of comics is that everyone gets screwed over uh, Siegel and Schuster only started getting royalties in 2008 I think. Yes, there was court and court and court and court and court and court and court. It's horrible. Mm. Well, we're, not, we're not going to talk about all the more. We're going to, to talk about one of the persons that I've never met in my life, but I hate the most in my life. I, I absolutely, like, I'm to the point where I almost don't want to put his name there because I, I hate that. No, no, uh, the, the guy right under. Yeah, hate that guy. So much hate that guy hate that guy in such a bad uh, it's, I, I've never I do not believe I've ever hated someone as much as I hate that guy. Like really? Like I've, I haven't met him, but everything that I know about him now is pure hate. I absolutely despise this guy. <laughs> the, uh, world leaders. I will, I will, no, this is like me, this is mise en scène, I'm just presenting how much I want to, I want to hear this <laughs> guy. No, it's even worse, it's even worse. He's such a, blah. ah, phew, I hate him. Okay, what happened? Uh, yes, before we get to I have a question about Batman. Let's go. Because you mentioned that, what's his name, wasn't a superhero because he didn't have- Doc Samson? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right, and it is a debate. Is, is, are those mortal characters superheroes, or are they just in the superhero genre? But that debate does exist, like uh, who's, is Batman more powerful than Spider-Man because he doesn't have powers and stuff of the sort? That is the type of geek debate that exists, yes. Yes, they would technically be heroes, since they are like us. Yeah, but also, everyone here is super smart. Everyone, everyone's super smart. Okay, why I hate Bob Kane. Uh, May 1939, this is like the moment where people are doing cash grabs for intellectual properties. Everyone's realizing that Superman is a massive success. Any superhero, come on, we want some, we're going to publish them. Batman is, uh, a, is a, 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 the fruit of a conversation in between a man called Bob Kane and a man called Bill Finger. When Bob Kane presents the idea of Batman, I'm going to bring you... Into the hate. Okay. <sighs> yeah. wait, you, the you saw? You found the website? <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is Batman according to Bob Kane. When he presented the character, he said, yeah, he's going to blonde, and, uh, and then Bill Finger went, wait, let's add the cowl. Wait, I, I have the list. It's that horrible. Okay. Uh, no, 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 no bob kane presents i have a, a character he will be a batman and then bill finger says oh that's absolutely great maybe you should dress them all in black maybe you should put a cowl on his head maybe he could um maybe his identity is uh, bruce wayne L- like basically it's everything. It's this goes even farther so then bill finger goes maybe his name is bruce wayne maybe he lives in gotham city Maybe he has a friend called Commissioner Gordon. Maybe he has a sidekick named Robin. Maybe he has a villain named Joker. Maybe he has kind of a villain named Catwoman. Maybe he has a car named the Batmobile. Maybe he has a a cave called the Batcave. These are all things that Bill Finger thought of. Uh, But (laughs) during those times, what was happening in between publishing houses is that they were very afraid of having people for example, propose Superman, and Superman is a property of one paper, but having that person go to another paper and give ideas to other papers. That w- that's what they were very afraid of. So basically what Bob Kane went, what did is he went to DC Comics and he said, I'm going to rat out on anyone that gives ideas to other papers, as long as you make sure that everyone thinks that I'm the only one who created Batman. That was the understanding of it. I, I, that's it, it's the combination of ruin, like obviously the man has no talent. <laughs> <laughs> obviously he never drew an entire issue of Batman himself and he also screwed over a massive am- amount of artists to make sure that DC always respects the contract of saying Batman created by Bob King and Bob King alone. Yes, he's dead, yes. But he didn't, but he died after the TV series, so he died immensely rich. Like, it, I don't know. Now, you're, 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 you're furthering me on, like, you, you don't know, but you're egging me on this one? And this is where, it, like, it really hurts as a geek. We don't know where Bill Finger is buried because he was so poor that he doesn't have a grave. There's no way of knowing where the creator of everything around Batman is buried he was so poor when he died to
2: this by
0: only it only started in this is the end of my class but <laughs> it only started in two, uh have the date season four of gotham that's when it started the first series where they acknowledge the fact that is co-created by bob kane and bill finger But there's also, like, there's Bill Flinger, but there's also Jerry Robinson. Uh, There's also uh, uh, Dick Sprang and Jerry Nelson. Like, Bob Kane, for 50 years, made sure that anyone who worked on Batman was not named. So, I hate him. I so hate him. Yes, sorry. Uh, no, no, uh, Robin was invented pretty close to the original Detective 27. I know there was a, like, there's um, a, there's a mockery of the original Batman in the Batman mythos, but it's uh, a character called Azrael. Azrael is, I've read once that it was a joke on, on the uh, Bob Kane Batman, is the fact that it's a character who has a fervor that believes that he is Batman, but he's not Batman. But the more that you tell him he's not Batman, the more he becomes insane, and that's why Azrael ends up taking Batman's place in, uh, after Bane breaks uh, Bruce Wayne's back. Like there's a joke of having a fake Batman, a psychotic fake Batman within the Batman mythos, and Azrael kinda looks like that. That, I've, like I read that, he's present, like the. Well, cause I
2: know they changed it after, like Ezra, like after a few years, I read like the comics about him, I mean, he became like more as the knight, and not mm-hmm. the Batman. he looks like, well they sort of like give him a chip in his brain, and he thinks like he's a crusader of knight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's,
0: the and th- yeah. that's the, the, the um, that's like the fixed form of the character. It's what, like even in Gotham, that's how he's represented as being a holy knight. But in Gotham, I think they even associate him with the uh, Court of Owls, if I remember correctly. And the Court of Owls is something that came in like in 2010 or 12. So Azrael is not, what I'm saying is that when he was thought up, he was thought up as a jab and then people continued writing him and as in all serialized, the uh, literature, eventually you get to the core of the character and that's the Templar identity, yes. But there's, in the beginning when they were like, oh, it would be great to have this guy who comes in and, pre- and replaces Batman and believes that he's better than him, but ends up being an absolute utter failure, it would be great to have him reference back to, the, to, the, to Bob Kane's original creation. Bizarro, yeah, but Bizarro starts in the 60s, even the 50s, that's the drugs thing. Bizarro's uh, a lot of drugs, it's so great. Yes, uh, sorry, yeah? We found the
2: grave of Bob
0: Kane. It oh, no, not, no, Bill Finger has no grave. Yeah. Oh, I you know, want Bob me to go defecate time. on you? Yeah. Where is <laughs> it? You want to
1: the grave of Bob King. Yeah, I you
0: wouldn't dance, so I, so I, really, I really, I really hate it. It's
1: memorial okay, bar right. in California, USA. Yeah, it's so far. On
0: the Yeah, no, no, that'll trigger me way too much. I can't deal with that. <laughs> There's the little Batman logo on it, isn't there? Oh my god, the, the face of the dude. Yeah, no, he's, no. That fucking, that I hate that picture. I hate that picture. You, same that same picture. you know, just, understand. it's such a horrible picture. That's, that's, it's the, it's the picture, that's the, uh, the post 67 uh, TV show, look at all the money I made yeah. with a character I didn't create face. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> I, I so hate him, yes, sorry. World's greatest the detective,
1: Crusader, you have the dark knight, the world's greatest detective and and that's more the Frank Miller thing, the deranged sociopath who enjoys breaking
0: legs and Dark Knight, uh, that's Dark Knight. Okay. The the Cape Crusader is the uh it would be like the most uh, vigilante in him, the totalitarian psychotic what we're seeing right now with with Robert Patterson is The Dark Knight, and The World's Greatest Detective is the one where he meets Sherlock Holmes, and they're both like... <laughs> but yeah, there are, and... Um, and where
1: does uh, Michael Keaton fit in?
0: I love Michael Keaton. No, the... Uh, Cape Crusader, okay. probably a lot more. Yeah, although there are like little Dark Knight things, but uh, the thing the is... Mike's Uh, the, the Tim Burton first film is 1989 and Dark Knight is 1986. So you don't have a lot of space in having that character. So you can look at, especially like in, in the filmic adaptations, you could look at the progress of. So um, you have the uh, Batman serialized radio uh, novels that are very much Cape Crusader. Then you have the Batman TV series. Then you have Dark Knight. And, and that's pretty much like the, the, the strongest reading that we have right now is The Dark Knight. We don't talk about Adam West. Well, yes we do. <laughs> we, we have, there's no choice, it's, he's very present. And that's the thing is that Adam West and, what was the parallel that I was gonna do there? Adam West becomes the Shoemaker. If you're looking at the films, you're actually filming the, a timeline of Batmans. You're starting off as Cape Crusader films, then you go into super campy Batman nipples, and then you go into Christopher Nolan. Woe is me! Everything's really hard. Can't feel my back. Can't feel my legs. This old man is kind of weird. Let me greet some old, some young kids, and all that. So, the the it's it's almost as if the timeline of Batman movies, if you take them as an entirety, are the 80 years or almost. Uh, 100 years of the, no, not, no, are the 80 years of Batman as comics. I don't know if that makes sense. Which brings me to the point, if we're going to have this argument, I love Lego Batman. It's the best Le- Batman movie ever. It's so great. Oh, I love Lego Batman. Oh, everything's in it. It's, that's the thing is that, it, uh, what I've been saying about Superman, when you look at Lego Batman, all the identities of Batman are there. And even like Billy Dee Williams plays Two-Face, which is the smartest Easter egg you can have. You can. You're you're allowed to like Clooney's Batman. I mean, no, it's it's just a bat food, like, a it's. it's, a, it's <laughs> <laughs> I took it like it's it's. Schumacher, the, the, the um, Batman Robin, Batman Forever, the director said explicitly that he was basing himself on the TV series, so <laughs> that makes perfect sense. And he apologized numerous times. Uh, he shouldn't. Like the Batman TV series had the Joker had a, the actor had a mustache, Cesar Romero but he would not shave his mustache, he just painted white over it. So Joker had like a painted white mustache. That's, that's, that's gold, that's so gold, it's so gold. Like the actor is being paid to play for like three years a character, does not want to shave his mustache. Character doesn't have a mustache, will paint it. He's so smart, like, Okay, thank you for, I can speak of Cesar Romero to stop hating this guy. Oh, I hate this guy. Uh, 19, where are we in time? Am I cruelly? Oh, that's good, that's good. Okay, once again, uh, I'm going to blank out for Captain America because a lot of Captain America is in the uh, US identity, obviously. What, uh, (laughs) and there are a lot of readings of the US state of uh, culture and politics through Captain America. Like if you read linearly, you can take like Watergate, (laughs) if you're reading Captain America while the Watergate scandal is happening, there are some huge undertones same thing with the um, the War on Terror, the Bush era, when you're reading Ed Brubaker's Captain America during that time, super clear. If you're look, reading uh, Nick Spencer's Captain America, when Trump was first elected, there's something amazingly fascist in it. It's really, it, Captain America is one of the books that I, l- I prefer reading because the, the the response rate to politics is so direct that there's, it, it's almost, you cannot write or draw a Captain America comic without speaking of the politics of that moment. In, I think when Nixon, I think it's around Nixon, Captain America presented himself as president of the United States. I'm not sure about if he presented himself because in the Marvel universe there was a scandal and there was no president, so they needed to find a replacement. But uh, he presented himself in 1977, I'm not too sure exactly, Uh, and he lost, which is great because like even your most, like the guy is named America and he can't <laughs> win the elections, it's so smart. So it's all these little things when you're reading them, I'll, I'll keep that for Canadian American culture, yes. I mean, I know like, it's very political,
2: but it didn't like trigger other countries to create their own captain. like
0: Captain Vietnam, Captain that Germany. That's, that's a good, that's a really good question. Canada. Captain Canada exists, yeah, because of the, uh, the Canada whites, I'm keeping that for, that, the, for the other class. Captain Canada exists, yeah, Captain Canuck exists, Joe Canuck exists, there are a Captain lot of,
2: Quebec.
0: Captain Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> <which is laughs> yeah, we can do that. Um, that's a really good, are there other captains? Like I know. Like Captain
2: America's Nemesis, like Superman, Bizarro,
0: Batman. Well, he's always been, like, he always hated Nazis. So uh, Red Skull, Baron Zemo are really like Nazi cut out characters. But um, this is really interesting about this cover is the fact that uh, Captain America sold so well because this is really like a declaration of imaginary war where Superman had went to Europe to fight during the Second World War, but this was the first cover where someone really, literally punched Hitler and people were like, oh fuck yeah, and they bought it. So that's why Captain America is so important is because they put it front and center like, we all want to do this, there's one of our guys yeah, punch a Nazi, exactly. And it's a tradition that's still alive today. <laughs> there was uh, another question, No, okay. Uh, so Captain America is something in itself, but it's uh, also the emergence of a, uh, a duo, Joe Simon who co-created, Joe Simon was the writer and Jack Kirby was uh, the uh, illustrator. Jack Kirby is considered the king of comics. The man who laid groundwork for so many of the, um, of the illustrative techniques around superheroes is Kirby Kirby also co-created a lot of the Avengers he co-created a lot of the uh, Marvel and the DC lore also so there's a lot you know a lot more of Kirby than you think you know it's the type of thing that he co-created X-Men yes also uh, a lot of the, the Marvel system was around what he he did with uh, Stanley oh I completely. yeah let's go um, do, 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 do. I just want to make sure that I've said everything I wanted. William Moulton Marston, the creator of uh, of Wonder Woman, he was a psychoanalyst. He is also known as the inventor of the polygraph test. One of the things that is most fascinating about William, exactly, the lasso of truth is an illustration of that polygraph test. I. I'm not 100% sure that this picture is who I think it is. I just want you to make, oh wait, sorry. Uh, Oh no, did I not? Oh no, okay, well, okay, I I thought I had added a picture but since I wasn't too sure that it was them. William Moulton Marston was married with Elizabeth Holloway Marston. They were two uh, psychologists, psychoanalysts uh, working at a university. They uh, both fell in love with a student called Olive Byrne so, for the rest of their life, they were a polyamorous uh, triangle. Olive was the inspiration for the graphic element of uh, Wonder Woman, where Elizabeth what was her mind. Bolton Marston does not consider himself as the creator. He considers himself as being inspired through his understanding of uh, psychoanalysi- psychoanalys- psychoanalys- psychoanalysis and through the understanding of his love that he, have f- he had for both these women. The thing is that William Moulton Marston died before them, so they went on being a couple without him afterwards. Uh, He wrote a book that is uh, very near and dear to me called The Emotions of Normal People, in which he presents a type of graph. Earlier on in class when I was uh, speaking of the humors and everyone kind of revolted around that idea, which is insane, Uh, Moulton Marston and uh, his, uh, well actually like the trio because they all work together, for a very long time presented a, a model called the DISC model, which is a model of uh, personality. Kind of looks like the humor model, but it's more of, um, I, can't, I do not remember them correctly, I think D is for dominance, I is for independence, S is for sociability, and C is for control. I think, I'm not too sure about this, and they would measure humans as being variants in those intersections. In The Emotions of Normal People, and this is very much present in Wonder Woman, William Moulton Marston had an understanding of society that he, would, that he called loving domination. His understanding of the world is that there is nothing wrong if you are dominated by someone as long as that person wants the best for you. So there's, there's a, 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 an abandonment and an understanding that if you trust the person that dominates you, and if you trust that that person wants the best for you, there's nothing wrong in domination. That becomes exactly very present in Wonder Woman, why she is being tied up all the time. There's uh, there's a lot of visualization and iconography around Wonder Woman where she's tied up. Some people can see some overt um, domination on the character, like saying the women are always tied up, but William Walter Marston's side in a different manner. There's a, a type of abandonment through that domination, that when you read emotion of, nor- emotion of Normal People is very poetic and beautiful. I, I was very, I, I, I was surprised at how sound it's, it's presented in the book. He makes such a beautiful argument about loving domination that it's, it became, Wonder Woman became the fiction that he wrote to be able to explain that concept and to apply that concept to imagination so everything that's around paradise island timesia and the and the amazons is a non hierarchical understanding of the world in which everyone is equal but it's it, it's uh, uh, th- there's something no one how do i say it like it's so it's Especially, okay, I I need to open this up. uh, I've been reading a lot of uh, Georges Perez lately. Georges Perez is the, (sighs) go back again. When William Moulton Marston died, a lot of people tried to write Wonder Woman, but it was never really written correctly. There was like the superhero and uh, supermodel, the businesswoman. There was a lot of Wonder Woman um, iterations that were, uh, speaking of the time, but they weren't, super convincing. It's all the way until 1987, I think, where Josh Perez took her uh, as a personal project with Len Wein, and he really wrote, uh, like I, r- I wrote, I, r- I read those issues when I was a kid, and Josh uh, Perez last December announced that he's, uh, he stopped treatment for his pancreatic cancer. So he's about to die. Uh, and when he announced that he was about to die, I went, okay, I'm just gonna read everything that he's done especially since he's the artist who uh, drew Infinite Gauntlet. But now I'm in the Wonder Woman's, so I'm having like a difficulty in going back to Molston's material, especially since I've been reading Perez's stuff really, really close. Two days ago, I read an issue of Wonder Woman in which Zeus descends and he goes, uh, oh yeah, uh, I hadn't really heard of you, Diana, like I, I know the Amazons and I know a lot of them, but." uh you've been doing some great things and uh, maybe you'd like to come up to olympus uh, for uh, uh, a spell with me and like everyone goes oh okay zeus is uh invited you into his office and you're like reading a 1986 issue of wonder woman where she goes okay so you get invited to zeus's place like once huh and it's this entire reading of zeus's trajectory with women as just harvey weinstein it's so creepy and like everything is present in those books to be able, like when Wonder Woman speaks of the world of men, it's very much informed of Moulton Marston's understanding of we need to find a way away from patriarchy and especially like the, the, the most destructive aspects of patriarchy up to the point where Moulton Marston considered Wonder Woman's ultimate uh, opponent as being Ares. Ares is the main villain in Wonder Woman. It's the, the our instinct to war, our instinct to fight. That's what she's constantly going against. So there was immense, prog- immensely progressive ideas in the book, and Perez went on and did like an amazing run of this, uh, up to the point where like both films that you've probably seen are super bastardized versions of Perez's ideas, uh, especially uh, everything that's around um, the Swan character is. Was originally very sensitive and very well understood, and they did something uh, shameful, I'd, I'd say, around it. And after Perez, there was a uh, Phil Jimenez, who's a Brazilian, uh, the first homosexual man to have uh, drawn Wonder Woman, who also takes on that mantle and takes on those ideas. So Wonder Woman is something of a very precious idea. Over the fact that, like most people think that she is, a, she's the first woman superhero, but that's not the case. The first super. Uh, oh, oh uh, yeah, the first one is uh, June Tart Mills who created a character called Miss Fury six months before Wonder Woman. Uh, I wanted to add, like, because it's uh, comic book industry is mostly a male-dominated field, so I, I wanted to have at least one woman who uh, did something beforehand. I need to go a little quicker. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry, you had questions. Everyone did. It's, as, as strange as it is, everyone did. They, they, during those years, there was an industry, like the industry that we now call the Tijuana Bibles, which are really disposable, small uh, erotic uh, comic books, like almost pornographic, they, they all did it. Uh, Schuster has a, a, an edition of, and it's, it's strange because it was a good way to pay the rent for these artists, but they had such a distinct and individual style that when you're reading Schuster's book of illustrations of like sexy illustrations, it's obviously Clark Kent and Lois Lane because that's how they drew people. So you're just flipping through their sexy notebook. And so Moulton Marston did it. Uh, everyone did it during that time. There, there's a lot, it's, it's, it's sex it sells and all these artists. Like, I don't know of a cultural industry in which there isn't a for hire underbelly of people. Novelists write short erotic fiction. Yeah, it's always there. I, I, it blew my mind when I realized that uh, professional wrestlers do that. Yeah, there's an actual industry of pro wrestlers who do uh, single, like they call them privates, and it's just like each, uh, the, the <laughs> no 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 like actually like it, this even like the person who told me this is a wrestler from cyther stash and he did he did like two privates in his life it's just him wrestling for one guy looking and he has to find a friend like uh, just wrestle for 40 minutes wait, what? I'm confused. yeah no no it's just <laughs> sorry you're I'm allowed bad. to i went i said good <laughs> wait i'm back i'm so confused <laughs> No, 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 it's just, you. as a wrestler, it can happen sometimes, you end a show, someone comes up and says, just get a buddy, I'll pay you 200 bucks each, I, I come and wrestle for half an hour at my place. There's nothing inherently sexual in what I'm saying, but everyone kind of leaps to that interpretation, and a guy once told me that he wrestled a friend in a house for 200 bucks, and there was nothing... Like he didn't see anything, or th- there was nothing um, deplacé, like nothing happened. But he was like, "Well, it's it's got to be sexy. I don't know. Like, ah, I can't believe you did that." <laughs> well, that, that, like I, I like, I, it's not. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe that exists. Like he's allowed to do whatever he wants. But in art, there is these types of things. Like the 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 most far fetched example that I had were wrestlers. But yeah, uh, a comic book artist always draw. Currently, there's a there's a a very subversive artist called Frank Cho who does these uh, really explicit alternate covers to things. So Frank Cho, you'll present him like a blank covered comic because a lot of comics you can get just like, they have like a a signature or uh, an individual drawing. And Frank Cho will just do dirty jokes nonstop. Like last week he did like an entire series of uh, superheroes failing in bed so, like, uh, Superman is no good. I think, I think they, they're, they're even sleeping with Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is really, like, unimpressed by their performance. And um, Superman is like, oh, there must be kryptonite here. And it's like all these in-jokes. Of, uh, but it's Frank Cho. Those covers are, like, 300 bucks because it's a little sexy. It's, it's yeah. That there's, th- a market. there's a mar- Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> there's a market for that. Thank you. There's a market for wrestlers. There's a market for sculptors. There's a market for... There's a market for everything. So uh, yeah, so there's uh, Wonder Woman, yeah. It it took me a little while to get back to that one. Uh, Okay, oh wait, oof, okay. Uh, Ah, shit, I didn't do this. I had put these books uh, in case of reference. A lot of uh, readings are done towards Superman's Judaism. If you're ever interested in this, the fact that there are are, um, elements of the Kryptonian language that are very close to Hebrew Uh, the fact that Superman's character is, uh, his father in Kryptonian is Jor-El, and um, uh, it's uh, Joseph, it's like the Jewish interpretation of the name of one of the authors. So, and uh, Kal-El is chosen one, or uh, one from chosen land, I think, in in Hebrew. So there's, uh, there are certain uh, scientific texts but there's also an amazing book by Danny Fringaroth about uh, the idea of uh, hiding the Jewish diaspora behind a huge costume as uh, Superman is. So, this guy's this cock-head. Uh, Acceleration, acceleration, yeah, yeah, uh. Okay, this is um, more of like a, a, an explanation that people started getting afraid really early, up until the, ni- like, as early as the 1940s of the influence of comic book publications so some people went and looked at uh, the the looking at the morals of uh, the stories so saying there uh, there's no good deed that's unrewarded and misdeeds are always uh, punished in comic books this is uh, like in the 1940s and the other like Uprising here is uh, the Catholic church that starts being afraid of the fact that, uh, I, of the bib, <laughs> okay. Uh, there are plenty of American children who know more about this man, Superman, Wonder Superman than they do about Christ or any of the great characters of the Bible. So the, the on one side, a lot of people start a, there's the beginning of a moral panic around superheroes, around comic books because they realize, as I was saying in the last class, Um, when the men went out to war and the women started working, there was like a new class that was created with disposable income. So kids had allowances for the first time in their life. Their allowances, they would spend on comic books and candy. So kids would be uh, mainlining these things. They would be reading a lot of the books. I even think I have stats here where I put them later on. Yes. Uh, 90% of boys and 91% of girls were reading comics in 1947. Having that Uh, close connect with the child, with uh, the children and childhood in general, scared a couple of people and that's where they started this moral panic or they started being very much afraid of uh, what could happen if these kids, uh, or, or how, okay, what I'm trying to say is basically everything you've heard about how video games corrupt youth, that happened with comic books beforehand, yes. Uh, uh, wait, let me, I just want to see if I'm doing, uh, okay, okay, basically what happened, I'll do this super quick because I, I, this is longer than I was expecting. What happened is that there was a huge boom for superhero comics, kids were super into it, and then at a certain point they started getting older and they went, okay, superheroes are great, this is fun, but I'm getting older, I want new stuff. So they turned to a type of crime comic called, and uh, in, in especially an imprint of EC Comics And EC Comics were doing all these weird science, crimes, vault of horror, so things that were a lot more explicit in their presentation because kids were growing up, they wanted to get the cool stuff, they didn't wanna have the friendly superheroes anymore. So superheroes were in decline, but all these types of stories that were inspired by Conan the Barbarian, that were inspired by H.P. Lovecraft at that time, became immensely popular. One of the titles that you would recognize is Tales from the Crypt, which still exists and it's still being, I think there's still a, show of Tales of the Crypt on Shudder right now what happened is since the 1940s there was already this type of weariness or they weren't too sure about how comics were influencing the youth and then when they got to this point where there was full-blown full-blown murder and the morality was starting to shift away then it turned into a public thing and by turning into a public thing, we go to a man in 1952 called Estes Kefauver, who announced himself for a seat on the Democratic Party in 1952. Uh, his platform was on the protection of youth. So in 1952, he went, you need to elect me. These comics are corrupting our kids, and this guy is gonna tell us. And they, he hired Dr. Frederick Wortham, who was in Europe during the war and was um, hanging out with a theorist, uh, a, a group of, um, of uh, theoretical thinkers, the uh, théoriciens. sorry, um, Adorno, all they called like the group of Frankfurt that were becoming very critical of mass culture. So, they were saying this is going to uh, uh, annihilate uh, the public sphere. It's going to make everyone criminals. It's going to make everyone uh, dehumanization came from those uh, from, from that school of idea. Pop culture will rot your brain, started around the uh, school of Frankfurt. Frederick Wertham was around those guys. He was also working in the United States. There's um, an Uh, there would be an instinct to demonize Wortham, but he's done some really amazing stuff, especially uh, in the, he was in the uh, consultation group for the desegregation of schools and he was for it. He went like, you need to to separate these boundaries. So he did some really great things, but he also wrote Seduction of the Innocent, which is like the Bible of kids, kids are, are losing their minds. (laughs) The the entire, like, uh, Batman and Robin are sleeping together comes from there. He's the first guy who have written, like, oh, these two males are way too close to each other. Maybe comics are turning our kids into... That's what he did. Yes. So uh, that's where we needed these types of... Like, as people did the research, and they went and they looked for punished-unpunished and saw a lot of basically like everything was in order. Things were punished, but how they were punished, like having uh, one of the, the out uh, after this went to trial, uh, the comics industry was completely uh, demolished. They had to impose a, they had to create a self-imposed sign of censorship called the Comics Code Authority, which was not an organized group, is basically all the publishing houses saying, uh, yeah, we're, we're respecting your rules, the rules being nothing exp- like um, no no good deed, uh, all good deeds are, are uh, rewarded, no bad deed is, like really strictly drawn morality lines in there. That took, wait we're 1952, that took about 40 years to like dissipate slowly. It was such a, this also happened in the, uh, in the um, film industry. It was very much a, a fear, of communism and of the uh, gov- governmental authorities where people immediately went, we're not, we're not ambiguous, we're moral, straight, white, black, psh, done. And they held that, the Comic Quotes Authority, was held until I think something like 96, where they really, it was always printed on the covers by saying these books are good, are okay for kids. They are, they have been vetted, although they were never really vetted, it's more like a sense selfish, uh, self-censorship that was done. And uh, that was so. So the fact of having that research, and them saying like, no, the morality in the books is is very apparent, but them being so afraid of the government made them straighter than straight, basically, like as in the uh, roi. And uh, that's when. Well, we'll see. Well, uh, I. I the 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 massaging of the comic co- code authority massaging as in relaxation as in let's see what we can get away with is something that happens very progressively but th- punisher's example is obviously one of the the things that couldn't be published at that time it's th- it published uh, punisher was well, it created like the, um, from actual
2: the actual zeroes, uh, yeah
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're right, you're right. He does start off as a vina- villain and he goes into like a, a phase of favor in the beginning of the 90s, yeah. especially like around, because Punisher was obviously like a, a riff on uh, John Rambo. And John Rambo, yeah, like the original not novel not. is a very poignant <laughs> anti-Vietnam novel. So we understand why they started off like, wanting to have a character such as punisher to be able to speak of ptsd to be able to speak of the horrors of war but the character just became more and more john rambo and even last week jason Aaron came back on punisher with like a new idea of uh, uh, civilian military and all these things that are very contemporary yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Did I? Oh yeah, that's d- okay. Sir. The um, I brought you the second edition, the second volume if you wanted to read it. Oh please. Did you? Yeah, okay, there you go. Boom, volume 2. Um, yes, I am. I am I didn't stop it. This is the type of reflex. Oh, oh.
2: Thing.
0: No, no, c'est tout en noir et blanc. Non, no, c'est tout en noir et blanc. It's une version couleur yeah. No. Really? I don't know. OK, I thought you were saying there was a color version. Oh, no, 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 no. Because there is like a tendency to colorize some classics, like Bone was colorized. There In Mouse? No. Paper was suppo- was yeah. drawn with black and white in mind, and it
1: was
0: colorized. Absolutely, yeah. But it was pretty quick. It's more like uh, prestige editions that are coming out, and they're colored, and they're just why. But this doesn't work. Mouse doesn't work I colored. Mm-hmm. and he said
1: afterward I would have drawn it in a whole different way if I knew it was to be
0: colorized. It was uh, drawn by David Lloyd. It was written by Alan Moore. Okay, well, yeah. it was David, Lo- Lloyd. Uh, David Lloyd said that, makes sense. Okay, uh, because I, d- I didn't want you to go too much. That's why it's only volume one that I made available. Uh, you know, probably know that uh, Mouse won the Pulitzer Prize one of the first uh, graphic first comic book, well it's a graphic novel because it wasn't published in serialized form, um, although some parts were published in uh, different uh, editions. Uh, a good friend of mine keeps saying that the reason it won a Pulitzer Prize is because of the first page of the second volume that I have right here, in case you haven't seen it. This is like the powerful page that everyone went, <gasps> shit, uh, it took a lot of time in between volume one and volume two for Art Spiegelman to encapsulate the idea and wanting him to, to be able to, to draw this. So uh, this is the first page of Maus, uh, of the second volume, and it's really like during volume two that, although there are a lot of very important elements in the first one, Art Spiegelman becomes a lot more of a, um, an artist confronting his own subject in volume two. If you ever want to read it, I just didn't want to burden you with all this. So there should have been a conversation, but we only have like 40 to to 45 minutes left, so I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to do better next time. The Silver Age of comics starts in October 1956 with the publication of uh, Showcase Number Four. This, uh, which, is it there? No, it's not there. Showcase Number Four is here. Yes, the uh, the beginning of the Silver Age is marked with uh, this issue because Carmen Infantino Rewrites a character that previously existed. So Flash existed in the Golden Age because he was part of the Justice League of event of, uh, of America, but the Flash of the Golden Age took a lot more characteristics uh, from Mercury. So he had the little winged feet, he had uh, the um, uh, a disc as a as a hat, a lot of uh, iconographies that were taken from uh, Greek sculpture. In the Silver Age, we're like starting all over again and we're rebooting characters. This is pretty obviously a reboot. And we say, we we announce this new era with a new Flash. The thing also with the Silver Age of comics is that it's it's very much influenced in science. So the rebranding or the rebooting of, or the the reimagining of the character of Flash takes him away from his mythological roots and brings him to be to become a science hero. So Flash gets his uh, super speed through uh, an accident in the laboratory and he becomes a lot more of a pedagogical character, if I can say. He becomes a character that is very based in science. So he, the way that he thwarts villains is not through a, 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 a specific use of powers, it's through a specific use of the understanding of physics or chemistry or other disciplines of science. Barry Allen is a scientist before everything else. Uh, I saw um, Spider-Man No Way Home last weekend. I I know I'm late, but there is a moment in Spider-Man where all three Spider-Men decide to go to the laboratory and they they go into the lab and they do the experiments and they they create these potions. That comes obviously from the Silver Age where there's a moment where uh, the United States in general uh, d- uh, decide on, okay, on, a, on a priorities if I can say. What happens is in 1957 the Soviet Union sends Sputnik into space and then the United States goes, oh shit, we need to catch up. So in catching up, they uh, do the they, they write up the National Defense Education Act of 1958, which is the um, most successful legislative initiative in higher education ever. This is the biggest increase in the educational budget in the history of the U.S. Because they wanted to win the space race, basically. Uh, what happened is that uh, John F. Kennedy in 1961 says that he wants to send people into the, uh, into he wants to send people into the moon. No, he wants to send someone on the moon, and by doing that, they need to create scientists. They need to, uh, uh, the education budget needs to go up. And there's a lot of um, uh, usage of like equipment, audiovisual equipment, like everything, like classes at the end of the 50s become a lot more equipped. They um, uh, refurbish all the texts, they refurbish all of the um, uh, tools for teachers. Uh, they're really trying to create a bunch of scientists that will be able to accomplish uh, um, Kennedy's objective before the Russians. The thing is, this really like changed my perspective on a lot of things, especially around uh, American culture, is that by increasing the budget and by uh, making schools better for, for kids in hopes that they will have more scientists, Well, they also educated a whole lot of other kids that didn't want to do science. So basically what happened also is that by trying to, by making better schools and equipping teachers in a better manner, they were also educating everyone else. So kids read better, were more informed, had uh, more up-to-date scientific information, geographical information, like school in general was just at a better level for everyone So that kinda, um, it it became a wave that could be felt in arts and science and the humanities all the way until the end of the 80s. Like those kids were so well educated that even going back to the theme that I was uh, talking of uh, earlier on, even kids that ended up in drugs were highly educated drug uh, gurus basically. Which brings us like, I. I might speak more of this next week, but we have, like, during the 1960s and 1970s, we have amazingly smart poets that decide to uh, create uh, a ring around the Pentagon to be able to make it float. It's these types of ideas that kind of bend reality, and those are all kids that were educated because of this um, initiative to to get to the to get to the moon. So. When this happened, the kids got a lot more informed towards science. We had characters that were reflecting that, such as The Flash. So you had to make, I won't say like rigorous, but there was something, like the the public imagination jumped a step towards science. So Kennedy, in May 25th, 1961, says he wants to send people to the moon, and July, 1961 is the publication of Fantastic Four number 1. So I didn't really talk of Stan Lee before this. There's a there's a, a huge debate b- between these characters, between both of these creators, is the fact that Stan Lee is the name that you probably know most. Uh, Stan Lee had a really peculiar way of writing, especially because he had become a, he was a, before Fantastic Four, he was a, a, a worker, basically, who would, write scripts and he would take care of uh, the business around um, around Marvel Comics. But oh yeah, and here you have the example of the Comics Code Authority right here. Uh, But uh, Stanley started getting uh, annoyed of his work. He didn't feel like his uh, artistic input was appreciated and stuff. So uh, one night he went uh, home and he spoke to his wife, Joan, and he said, I think I'm going to quit this thing. And Joan said, if you're going to quit, at least give it one last shot. Just do one thing that you really, that's you, and see if that fails, fine, it's not done for you. So what he did is he pitched Fantastic Four, which didn't, wasn't in the paradigm of the golden era, uh, of the golden age of comics. It was uh, characters that were transformed because of, uh, uh, there were gamma rays during that time. Uh, The story of Fantastic Four is you have, three members of the same family and a best friend. So Reed Richards, who's married with Sue Richards, whose brother is Johnny Storm, and Ben Grimm, who is Reed Richards' best friend, they uh, try and they experiment to go into space. They are bombarded with rays, and when they come back to Earth, they're transformed with uh, strange powers into the Fantastic Four. These strange powers are the four elements. So you have fire, wind, Earth, and water. It, yeah, but it's uh, the, the power aren't, yeah, sorry. The, the, they are like, it's the same powers. He is stretchy, but he is like water. She is invisible, so she is like air. He catches on fire, so he is like fire. Thing is made of rock, so he is like earth. But no, the powers are always the same. There was no point where uh, Reed Richards was made of water. He was always the stretchy. It's just the, um, the, the theory that Stanley explained is that you know how um, there's the diffraction of light through a crystal Well he like diffracted the elements through humans so he gave them each one of like the basic elements of life. So that's why I say he's water but he is, uh, he is rubber. But yeah. pool man is weird. So um, that's where, well actually the thing is Stanley and uh, Jack Kirby's creation Fantastic Four was an immense success because it was very much uh, in tune with this scientific environment and the the how people were enthusiastic about this added to the fact that it was also like a a combination also with um, family comics of that time since Fantastic Four are a family. So there's on one side the extravagance of science and exploration, on the other side deep-rooted drama in the fact that they have to coexist as a family and also as a team. Yes. Yes? Things that set them apart from the rest of society and them longing for being. I think. Part of the society. You're right. The only thing that I'm not sure is. Well, you're right when you say one of the. I think Doom Patrol comes out a little before. I think. That's the only, like. Mm. But Doom Patrol doesn't have this type of success. So you're right. It is the one of the moments like. There's something inherently tragic around the character of Ben Grimm is that he can never revert to his human form. So as much as Reed uses his, uh, his uh, higher intelligence to try to, to cure Ben Grimm, he is unable. The, his super intelligence is also uh, amplified by his powers since he can move his brain to be able to increase certain sections that he would need more for calculus. Yeah, everything is very coherent in here. Uh, and um, well, you have like the disappearing housewife, which is played by Sue, so like the invisible woman is also very metaphorical in, uh, in, their, in, in either in her powers and also in the way that she has been uh, represented as a character. Fantastic Four is an immense success. This propulses Stan Lee uh, with a lot of confidence to be able to pitch other ideas, but it becomes a problem because he has so many ideas and he starts creating so many characters that he becomes overworked. And by being overworked, what happens is that he, his method of writing, which is now called the Marvel method, is he would run into one of the artist's office and say, OK, today um, we're going to have a dragon and, uh, and then uh, someone, he's, uh, he can run. He's dressed in, uh, in orange. OK, he can, um, he's going to uh, uh, do a thing and then the dragon falls. OK, uh, draw it. And then he leaves. So like the, the, what I was speaking of with Bob Kane kinda is, we're close to that. Stanley was an idea guy, so he would pitch stuff. But in the end, a lot of the artists would have to fill in the blanks or write the story. This had become a point of contention and will become a point of a lot of irritation in a lot of Stanley's creations because the brunt of the work is done by the artists, basically. Uh, this, Will also be the case with Spider-Man, uh, where uh, Stanley will present someone—it's uh, Spider Boy—and then Steve Ditko will put everything that he has in Spider-Man, only to see Jack. Uh, sorry, Stanley becoming the famous creator of Spider-Man. All the while, he's putting a lot of himself in it, and eventually, will will get fed up and quit the character. And Ditko uh, is a is a recluse up to this point. I think the only. The only person I know who's seen him is Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman did a a tiny documentary like a 30 minute where he tracked him through New York to try to get to his office and when he gets, he finds the office, he leaves the camera at the door he goes up and he he just goes, like the documentary ends with him leaving going, I just met Steve Ditko, that was so weird. He's (laughs) like the the, the man who co-created Spider-Man is a complete uh, anonymous presence, yes. That That's very, Man <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Man-Bat is, uh, we'd have to get to Mad Bat story. It's it's actually really beautiful. Like the first uh, appearance of Man-Bat is in uh, Batman 400 and it's yeah. it's great. It's really, really great. But it is, uh, Man-Bat was supposed to be in Marvel Comics, but they were afraid of being sued. So the creator waited to get to DC to pitch the character so sometimes you get some situations where there are characters that are very similar on one side or the other like there was a th- there was a, a time where there was kind of a symmetry in between Daredevil and Batman where B- Daredevil was Marvel's Batman and the stories would pretty much pretty much uh, like echo each other sometimes you have that type of thing yes Yeah yeah well he tried to yeah he wanted to experiment with reptilian blood to be able to regenerate his hand and then he became yeah well, same
2: for dc well he was like, uh, i think he was, like disabled and uh, he yeah. tried, like a bad dna and he became like
0: that's the thing is that since there aren't There are certain exclusivity contracts, but creators bounce on one side or the other. So sometimes you get things, ideas that are, okay, they've been exploited in this manner. And it goes all the way until maybe, probably something like GLA versus Avengers to really understand how distinct both those worlds are is that um, one of the examples that I use the most is, is when Captain America meets Superman Uh, Superman calls Captain America a coward and and Captain America calls Superman a fascist. Like he says, Superman accuses Captain America of not doing enough and Captain America accuses Superman of being too much, of controlling everybody. So it kind of gives you a hint of how those worlds, you can take the same character and you put them in, in both those worlds and they will develop in different manners because how the Marvel Universe is done is it's inherently broken. We're constant, it's more like a civil rights kind of thing, like people are constantly fighting as being outsiders, where on the other side in DC, you're a lot more in the realms of, of gods and people that look upon humanity from high up. Even Batman as not being a god, but still there's always that, that type of Batman is on the side of a, of a building looking down on humans, where Marvel has more of a street eyes point of view Silver Age, yeah.
1: I, I'm sorry. I, I'm going back to a, a podcast I heard, uh, like a serial on the DC versus Marvel, uh-huh. and there was, well, first of all, there was a, that that time uh, Kirby switched. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: that Marvel made to DC. Yeah, there's like 30 years of that. <laughs> there's really, like, it's it, it, it's interesting when you're looking at how they, they one-up each other, it's kind of constantly there's something, uh, the death of Batman, the death of Superman, are like obvious events of trying to get the upper hand.
1: Always frames DC that has been trying to pick up on what the, the Wunder Kid is
0: doing. Yeah. Marvel has been, look at this guy. Yeah. <laughs> But y- y- I, it's, it's interesting because there, it is a war but it's two different battlefronts. It's two different types of armies basically. So no one never really wins. Like there's... Uh, uh, in movie currently we're framing it through adaptations. But like in movie adaptations, Marvel has the upper hand for sure. But in television adaptation, DC has the upper hand. Like DC creates a lot more engaging and interesting TV series. Like up to the point where they, they they adapted Crisis on Infinite Earth, which is their own Infinity Gauntlet. It's a huge storyline. It was through five or six different TV shows or something of the sort. It's massive. But DC they win on TV. Marvel win on television. Like it's always different. Uh, huh? Oh, sorry. TV and uh, films. They're different um, battlefronts. Yeah. But it's it's always been the case. It's. <laughs> They've always been like, well, always. Since the Silver Age, because Marvel didn't, it kind of existed before, but it was timely and it wasn't that, that stable. It's really with um, Stanley and Jack Kirby that it got really, really stable. The other one that I wanted to mention is, in June 1962, the Supreme Court decides to, um, uh, st- it stops making prayers obligatory in public classes. And in August 1962, there's the creation of Thor. So like, how close is the fact that we're getting rid of Catholicisms in class and making a pagan superhero? <laughs> for me, it's like a, just a weird coincidence, but it's fun. Oh yeah, okay, so uh, that's the thing with the Silver Age of comics is there was something very scientific but very exploratory. In the first one, I'm just gonna go back to these titles. Uh, this title is super interesting, it's called Flash of Two Worlds. Uh, the Flash of the Silver Age learns that he can vibrate to a certain frequency, so he is able to um, traverse the multiverse and he meets the original Flash. So all this multiverse stuff that's happening right now through Spider-Man and uh, What If and all that started off Flash of Two Worlds because someone was really interested in particle physics at that point. Uh, it on the other side, you get like the creation of the standard X-Men, so the original 5 Iceman, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Beast, and Archangel. But the more popular, more recognized iteration of X-Men will come during the Bronze Age, the creation of the Avengers, obviously. And a lot of, um, well, a lot. The beginning of the, the pretty crazy stories around Superman and Batman. Like every time you hear like top 10 craziest things you've seen Batman or Superman do, it's during this era. They were really losing it. They were absolutely <laughs> losing it. Um, this is like the moment where you were speaking. Wh- I don't know who was speaking about captains. There, there, there was during these like uh, yeah, uh, captain. Is there Captain America? Like, there's a Captain Britain in Marvel, but it's something completely different. In uh, Batman, during these years, they were starting to have Batmans of uh, each culture. So there was, but um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I can't remember. I, I it's not the musketeer. No, it was, um, I have, to, but I know there was bat Hombre, basically, there was a, a Mexican Superman with a sombrero called Bat-Ombre, uh, <laughs> yeah. ah, what's the name of the, I can't remember, Le Légionnaire, I can't remember what the French Batman was, but during those eras we needed to have like a cowboy Batman, a Mexican Batman, we had, we had to have Batmans all over the place so we were just creating Batmans. and this will, yeah, that, no, but there was a Later on who oh why it's come our casque de Pueles so Batman can't remember uh, where that come from in It's in red Sun, huh, okay, thanks <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was a there, there's a really uh, famous story that was written by a uh, Mark Millar who's a, a crazy Scottish socialist he his story was basically that the pod that uh, Superman uses to escape Krypton is launched 15 minutes later. So because it's launched 15 minutes later, when it gets to Earth, it's, sci- Earth has cycled just a little bit longer. So Superman lands in Soviet Russia. <laughs> so he becomes the red sun and he becomes uh, a, a pawn for Stalin. So, and then you have like a, a, a perestroika Batman with fur on his cat. And his, that's where that came from. Okay, <laughs> I should not be doing these 20 minutes at the end. <laughs> like, and then he does this. Shit. Uh, okay, Jeanette Kahn in uh, 1976 becomes one of the first publishers for DC, and in 1981 becomes the first woman president of the Comics Division. So uh, super important, very loved present, presence uh, in uh, comics, and very, uh, a, a cameo. Janet was very much cameoed before <laughs> Stanley did that uh, for himself in the films. Uh, was born Karen Berger, Ella Moore, Frank Miller, Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee. Um, Karen Berger is a, 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 a brilliant editor. She's edited at least 30 to 40 years of books, uh, still active. Ella Moore is the mad uh, sorcerer of American comics. Uh, of American comics and British comics. Frank Miller is the cranky old man of American comics right now. He, uh, after 9-11, he wrote one of the most important stories on uh, Batman called Dark Knight Returns, which is the influential story that we know now, like the tradition of what's happening right now with Robert Pattinson comes from Frank Miller's story. But Frank Miller, when uh, 9-11 hit, he wrote uh, a, a Batman story called Holy Terror, where he wanted Batman to go beat up jihadists in caves, uh, so that's why we say he's a cra- he's a crazy old man. But he's he's gotten better in the, in the following years. Todd McFarlane is a Canadian uh, comic book artist who uh, became very very rich. Started buying uh, baseballs and hockey pucks, and people started laughing at him because like he would buy a, a very famous home run and then that record would be beaten the week afterwards. So people would laugh at him for him spending money to buy balls. And uh, Jim Lee, who's another very important artist and is right now a very high ranking um, executive in uh, DC comics. They were all born during that time. Okay, Bronze Age. Uh, Bronze Age is the, uh, this one is called more, I'm not going to do independent, oh. holy moly. This is too much. Uh, the Bronze Age is the um, years of uh, civil rights and civil activity. It's the moment where comics kind of develop a, a conscience towards uh, uh, imbalance and uh, injustices, but m- not injustices in the super, hor- super heroic sense, mostly in a uh, in the human sense. So you have. Um, a story of Green Lantern, Green Arrow, where uh, Green Arrow realizes that Speedy, his um, sidekick is a junkie, he uh, injects heroin. So it becomes this entire storyline about uh, what are we doing for kids and uh, drug uh, drug addiction. The uh, most important storyline around this is uh, Green Lantern 19, uh, sorry, Green Lantern 76. written by Neil Adams and uh, drawn by Daniel O'Neill, 1970, where a Green Lantern comes to Earth and he's uh, met with a man who says, uh, you have do, uh, you have done considerable for the purple skins, the aliens in space, and there's skins you've never bothered with, the black skins, I wanna know how come, answer me that Green Lantern, and Green Lantern is unable to answer, why is he not taking care of the people on Earth when he's constantly fighting aliens uh, outside? And that becomes a rallying cl- a rallying cry in the understanding that maybe we've gone too far in imagination and we need to come back and take care of our own post vietnam and all these things. So this is where like civic conscious hits the superhero uh, medium and as i was saying the kids that were educated during those years are reading these books so a lot of um, the countercultural movement adopt the, uh, the superhero icono- iconography. So Wonder Woman becomes a very important archetype during those times, Green Lantern and Green Arrow. Green Arrow becomes a, uh, a, a socialist Batman basically. So he fights to be able to implement um, civil systems for, the, uh, for uh, urban situations. All these creators and these creators are also very much engaged in this type of activism and their activism passes through in their work so there's a, a I think the term radicalization is is too hard but there's an initiation to uh, pro- social problematics through I'm comics an yeah an awakening that's good the awakening goes through this imagination and <laughs> going back to the uh, to the, um, the the title of the class where I was saying th- basically these ideas were hiding in plain sight. Everyone knew that kids were reading comics, but everyone thought that comics were for kids. So no one was really paying a lot of attention when these type of events were happening. What I was saying earlier on with Captain America, it's like no one, it's not that no one cared, it's just people wanted, its its it was kid stuff, so it, was, it wasn't dangerous post-seduction uh, of the innocent. So they were letting pretty radical ideas be printed through those pages. I'm basically a like a product of that generation. I, I read those books when I was way too young. Going wait, this these are really important things. And superhero comics have greatly uh, initiated me to those situations. Things that is they're less and less happening right now. I feel, but they're they're fighting on other fronts for sure. Uh, go up to giant size X-Men which is a second, the second iteration for the character. This point we start, um, we lose focus in the North American or like the, the white perspective on superheroes because basically what happens in the story is that all five original X-Mens are, are uh, captured on the an island of Kratua, and Xavier needs to, uh, Cyclops needs to find other mutants to be able to save the original X-Men the thing is, in all the new X-Men come from different cultures, so you have uh, Kurt Wagner, who's um, German; Warpath, who's First Nation; Colossus, who's Russian; Storm, who's Egyptian, North African, and Wolverine, who's Canadian. And uh, there are other like Star um, Banshee, who's Scottish; uh, Jubilee, who's Japanese; Sunfire, who's Japanese. Like the new X-Men is really like a an explosion, as you can see through the cover of multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism. In the X-Men, since we're talking about uh, people that are uh, hunted because of their differences, the mutation, uh, there are government instances who create giant robots called the sentinels who hunt them because of that subtext of being marginalized in society and having to use different names and having to Adopt a chosen family are sometimes being attacked by their own family need to go to a different school There is this entire Queer undercurrent to X-Men that as I was saying I did not see when I was a kid But was brought to my attention by Ramzi Fawaz in this book called the new mutants where he speaks of the entire Subtext of the civil rights through X-Men. It's very very interesting And it's it was there all along. It's not the type of thing that was in 2005, I think, Kieran Gillen rewrites, or uh, writes the X-Men and the Westminster House, the school where they go, which is in the north of the state of New York, blows up. So they have to find a new place to live and the X-Men relocate to San Francisco. And that just <laughs> nails it. You're like, okay, I, I get it. That's what, you, that's what you're trying to say. But in San Francisco, the, there are hate crimes against mutants. So you're able to speak of all these different realities through the lens of the mutant metaphor, this is all uh, Len Wayne and Dave Cockrum who does who do this. Uh, the end of the Bronze Age is uh, actually Louise Simonson becomes is very important for through the Silver Age and through the Bronze Age. She uh, was a writer and illustrator, <coughs> an illustrator, the wife of uh, someone who wrote Thor for I think eight years. Walt Simonson wrote really like the the, the known the meaty part of Thor, but she also co-created Doomsday, which is great when they wanted um there was, as we were speaking earlier on, uh, slump in sales, they were finding, they were looking for a way to, to jazz up Superman that certain people find too boring. Uh, what happened is they uh, they killed him off. And by killing them off, they really worked with uh, Christian symbolism. A lot, uh, huge, like, that's when Superman became Jesus, and he came back from the dead with like a uh, hockey hair, like a huge long mullet. The Superman mullet is untouchable. But uh, the um, person who killed, and this is the fact that she co-created Apocalypse for the X-Men, which is the first mutant, but she co-created Doomsday to the fact that the character is called Doomsday and Doomsday is the one who will defeat the reactualized figure of Christ through Superman. Louis Simonson is is an absolute genius. Uh, Okay, and then the end of the Bronze Age, Authors such as uh, Jonathan Hickman, which uh, is—they are current authors right now. If you're ever—this is a good—what's this? Yeah, I could do this. Okay. If you're ever interested in reading current comics, Hickman is the science guy. He writes. uh, He's a graphic designer by by trade, I think, because everything is represented in graphs when he does uh, books. He is currently writing, he, he was writing X-Men, he's on Substack right now, but he's also writing a book called Black Monday Murders, which is great. Black Monday Murders is about the uh, 1929 financial crash in the US, but it's, um, it's the, the, the framing is that the bank controllers are uh, uh, wizards and they use blood magic, so they can exchange blood for fluctuation in the market Uh, place and it's super it's not fantastic because it's very very much economy and then once in a while you have like a ritual sacrifice (laughs) it's really great Hickman is amazing Jason Aaron is the nephew of the author of Full Metal Jacket he started off in comics by writing a book called I can't remember why did I just say that it was a book on the Vietnam War everyone was blown away by it and then he went on and wrote what would be the wire on an Indian reservation called Scout. It's awesome. Jason Aaron also, like Hickman wrote a lot of Avengers and a lot of Fantastic Four. Jason Aaron wrote a lot of Thor, where he uh, had Thor fight the God Bomb, which is the god of atheism. So Thor is constantly fighting other gods, but now he has to fight the incarnation of not believing in gods because there has to be, a god, if, if there's a god for everything, there has to be a god of atheism. Is it
1: the
0: spirit of Sagan? <laughs> No, no, he's black and red. Uh, like dark and uh, attacks, it's, it's really, really good. Uh, he's currently writing Punisher. Jason Aaron uh, released, so the scout, he did Thor, he did a good run on Punisher, if you're ever interested. Ed Pisker is more like the crazy alternative guy he uh, wrote a thing called Hip Hop Family Tree where he tried to explain the entire history of hip hop as, a, uh, as two, uh, two graphic novels. He uh, also started off um, projects called Grand Design that he's no longer doing. Grand Design is taking like 80 years of stories and trying to make them coherent as one. So he wrote X-Men Grand Design as if you can write, you can read the entire story of X-Men only in one volume because there are so many issues, but he like pulled out everything that was fluff, and he went, "Let's go for this." G Willow Wilson is uh, an 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 author who became very popular in uh, around 9/11 because she is a, an American who converted to Islam around 2001 and started writing about uh, the Islamic presence in the United States through the superhero lens. So she her first series was called Air, and it was kind of a, like a spy, conspiratorial, fantastic spy novel with air uh, uh, hostess, like the main character was a flight attendant, there you go. And she ended up writing hacker novels that are, um, uh, that are th- happening in the Middle Orient, one of them called Alif the Unseen, which is a, a code, it's about a, a code language that is um, uh, understood and unlocked through uh, Ar- Arabian mythology. She's also pretty great. And Kelly Sudekonik is the very aggressively feminist author who's currently writing Aquaman, but she broke in with a, uh, a book called Bitch Planet, <laughs> which is, thank you for knowing that book. I, I did like two years of pressing everyone on that book. Oh, really? I went through like a Christmas where I'm gonna buy, to everyone to Did you offer bitch, bitch Planet to someone without yeah. knowing? Because it's a pretty... <laughs> yeah, so it was for my brother and his wife. How did they? There
2: were two editions, I was like, I will one
0: and the other. Yeah, I have only one while you do, yeah. <laughs> did they enjoy it? <laughs> I don't know. Ah, you need to ask them. <laughs> B- uh, Bitch Planet is a carceral planet for unruly women. So it's all, uh, it's, a, it's a women prison system in space for uh, women who are sent there because their husbands don't uh, have no use for them anymore. Uh, it's, and it's super badass. It's really, really good. Uh, yeah, so those are the people that were born during the Bronze Age. If, you ever, if you're looking for stuff to read, these are the five people that I, I love the most. Then we go to the Dark Age of Comics. I'm going, t- I don't have enough time, so we'll I'm probably going to be using this part. The Dark Age of Comics says a lot. I'm, I'm, going to use, I'm going to keep this one as a blank because we're going to speak about it in Canadian-American culture. What happened around the Dark Age of Comics is also what is called the British Invasion, is a lot of authors from Great Britain, from Scotland, from Ireland, when during the Second World War, when they would, um, when the, the US would create or found, I don't know how to say it, when they would install a military base in Great Britain to defend, the second thing that would appear, like they would end up in Scotland, And then they would create a military base. And the second thing would be a comic shop immediately. Soldiers read comics. That was, that is very well known. So when the war stopped, these comic book shops stayed and they were mostly American comics because they were serving the GIs. So there's an entire generation of, of British guys who grew up on American comics in a British context. And when the US got into the Reagan context, they got into the Thatcher context. And it's completely, and I need to add, they were immensely into punk rock. So American propaganda comics, punk rock and Thatcher, just, it was just like a mix to create super subversive stuff. Watchmen being one of the examples is that Alan Moore wrote a complete, contradiction of or like an extension or a very nihilist extension of everything that he was reading when he was a child and then he went on and he wrote uh, stuff like he, like he had written vendetta before but when the British punk rock scene started like basically what they did is they grew up doing shows and writing comics and then they got really good at, at, at writing comics they were invited over in the United States by Karen Berger that I mentioned earlier on. Karen Berger started editing those books and then this British invasion brought on after uh, After uh, Watchmen, there was uh, Grant Morrison's The Invisible, The Invisibles that I will be talking about maybe next week. There was also um, Neil Gaiman's Sandman. That's where Neil Gaiman got his, his huge break. It was uh, through Karen Berger. When I was speaking of the importance of dreams in comics, Sandman calls back to Windsor McKay nonstop. So the Dark Age is also, without extrapolating too much on this, uh, a a moment of ultra violence, a moment of very graphic criticism towards society. Uh, Watchmen has a lot of attack on the media. There's also very much an attack on uh, the media and Reaganism in general in Dark Knight Returns, which is the book of Frank Miller where before he was kind of an extremist. Although this is like the moment where people started being afraid of Batman and realizing that Batman has a tot- totalitarian bend to him. Uh, so like the Dark Age is ultra violence, characters such as the Punisher, the morality kind of goes away for a moment and we're pushing the envelope. After the Bronze Age where we started talking about drugs and, and uh, racism and all those things, the comics code kind of left and then it started becoming blood and, and moral ambiguity. Yes. Well, it's, it's pretty much like a, a, an environment in comics. That's why I call it the Dark Age. Everything became dark or extreme or bloody or even like Todd McFarlane was very much renowned as being someone who did edgy comics. And it was, uh, you know, Spawn was about demons and rapists and stuff of the sort. So there was a lot of that in, in comics. It wasn't, treat, it was treated in a very juvenile way for most of it where you, you read them right now and you're like, whoa, this is, this is a lot heavier. In the domain of the heavy, there is a creation, as I was saying, of vertical Comics. I have no time to speak of vertical Comics, but uh, all the characters are there. Maybe Shade the Changing Man, John Constantine, Death, Swamp Thing, um, Spider Jerusalem, who's a journalist, uh, I, 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 yeah, this, this'll be too long for me to, who? Agent 47. Who's Agent 47? From the Hitman series of video games. No. No, that's that's King Mob, oh, yeah, yeah. from uh, The Invisibles. Yeah. This is Timothy, the character who inspired Harry Potter, from the books of magic. Yeah. Animal Man, uh, a character who can absorb the characteristics of an animal uh, at um, a certain range around him. He taps into the morphogenetic field and therefore uh, becomes a activist for uh, veganism. Like these themes appear all over the place. This is a, um, Black Orpheus is a minor Batman villain about uh, deforestation. Uh, It's just, it's this, uh, he's uh, (sighs) a, it's as if there was a police force in 1984 that's only mission is to take care of all the perversion so he's like a perversion cop, but not like. like but it's not like yeah. By using perversion, I'm I'm I. It's techno futurism perversion. There's a in in the book. The book is called The Filth. There's a villain called Text Porno, P-O-R-N-E-A-U. <laughs> and Text Porno uh, ejaculates giant black sperm that blows through people. Sorry. <laughs> it's 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 far out. <laughs> Punk rock, drugs, and occultism, this is, that's why I really wanted to speak about it, but they're, they're, it's, it's insane. This character is called Agent Graves. He comes from a, a series called 100 Bullets. If you're ever into crime novels, 100 Bullets is insane. It's 100 issues. Agent Graves is a character. Basically what happens is you uh, it starts off with a character that has been uh, released from prison because she was unjustly convicted uh, for a crime. She meets Agent Graves, Agent Graves comes with a attaché case, he gives it to her, he says, in this case there is one gun, 100 bullets, and a dossier with the proof of whom wronged you, like, the absolute proof of whom uh, put you here, and uh, the 100 bullets are untraceable, the gun is above the law, you can do whatever you want with it. And it's just, it's 100 issues of that. People thinking about revenge, thinking about, well, what do I do with this? And during the entire uh, 100 issues, you're trying to understand how come Agent Graves has this power. But it's a huge meditation on violence and revenge and, and loss and well, it's great. Uh, okay, I, no, no, I didn't, sp- yes, I did speak of Karen Berger. Uh, Karen Berger is the editor of a lot of the Vertigo books. She is the, she's been the muse for a, a lot of these uh, authors Immensely loved, superbly intelligent and and nice woman. I had the opportunity to meet her once. Jill uh, Thompson was one of the artists on Sandman, wrote uh, wrote and drew some really amazing stuff during that time and is uh, a a trailblazer for women uh, writers uh, and illustrators. And Julie Doucet, who uh, lives not too far from here, is one of the first independent women uh, authors, she really I didn't really speak of, of the independence on that side, but I, I will do it earlier uh, later on. Julie Doucet uh, published a massively influential series that um, she's almost anonymous, although she is up for a prize at Angoulême this year. Uh, if you've ever heard of dirty, dirty, <laughs> dirty plot, sorry, that's that's her series, and it's just like the first superstar of independent zines. She has like this story where she's uh, a giant and uh, her, her, go read Julie, Julie, Dirty Planet. I can't describe it, uh, yeah, i there's, she, there's a strip where she imagines, oh no, I can't, I can't say that, it's just too, <laughs> it doesn't show, she looks super sweet, and she's super sweet as a person, but you're like, wow, your imagination is twisted. Uh, okay, yeah, okay, the heroics, okay, poof. Okay, uh, We are currently in the heroic age. The heroic age is post 9-11. Basically what happened is when 9-11 hit, we, uh, the United States and Canada, needed a resurgence of heroic figures, and that came through uh, superheroes. The heroic age is, uh, does a lot, like I think in, in the 2000s, with the emergence of the films, it was basically because people needed someone to save them in uncertain times. And now we're in an era of, Uh, representation. So the heroic era is very much in the multiplicity of characters. So you have Ironheart here, who's a Afro descendant young lady who's replacing Iron Man currently. You have Kamala Khan who plays, who is uh, Miss Marvel. The trailer for Miss Marvel came out uh, while we were in class. Uh, You have (laughs) uh, uh, America Ferreira, who's uh, taking up the mantle of Captain America. She should be in Falcon and Winter Soldier season two. Uh, Miles Morales, who replaces Peter Parker as Spider-Man. The heroic age is also the, um, a, a renewed interest in making everyone feel like a hero, like everyone can make a change and everyone has these heroic aspects within them. Oh yeah, okay, 9-11, the, the, first, um, the first object of, of culture and popular culture not the first object of culture, but the first object of popular culture on 9-11 was Amazing Spider-Man number 36, written by Straczynski while John Ramita was listening to the radio to um, hear if his family members were in the debris. So they had to write this entire story and it's all about uh, Ground Zero. It's a completely devastating piece. I would be able to speak about it for a long time, but I have no time. The woman of influence for, uh, for right now is Marjorie Liu. I didn't even complete it. She is the first woman to win a Eisner, no, sorry. Yes, an Eisner Award for writing. A book called Monstrous. If uh, you're very interested, it's a highly mythologically, uh, it's a, it's Lord of the Rings. No, not Lord of the Rings. It's Game of Thrones seen through Chinese mythology. It's pretty amazing, it's not easy to read because there are a lot of elements and it, like, we're not especially knowledgeable on all the intrinsic, uh, intrinsic characteristics, but just what she does with cats, I keep speaking of cats when I'm trying to conclude this class, but uh, <laughs> the, the, the ideas of cats in, uh, in Chinese mythology are very present in the book Monstrous. That's it, that's it. Okay, well yeah, they died. Uh, thank you very much. If there are any questions, I'm it's five. I made it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, Don't, why? Yes, thank you. Oh yeah, I wanted to say, uh, I had advanced a little on the fact that um, Bill Finger was recognized through Gotham. There was also, uh, there was a situation through, a, uh, George Lucas bought the rights for a character called Howard the Duck and made a really horrible thing, uh, really horrible film in the 1990s but uh, Steve Gerber, the creator, could never get the, the um, rights for, for Howard the Duck back. He was death in Guardians of the Galaxy. That's the thing, when... Mm-hmm. Exactly, in the loophole, because Lucas had the rights, but when Lucas sold Star Wars, he sold everything, and then Lucas sold to, Marv- uh, to, to Disney, Disney had Marvel, so the fact that Howard the Duck is at the end of the Guardians of the Galaxy is just a way to say, we've got the rights back to the character. So that's the same thing of them finally announcing Bill Finger at the beginning of Gotham. And there was a last one. Oh yeah, Siegel and Schuster in 2008 who got final royalties on Superman. Thank you very much. What are we doing next week?